from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre with phx.fm. Our featured guests today are Peggy and David Schlesinger. They're members of the Baha'i faith. They're prominent in the Chandler area. And uh, we're going to have a very interesting conversation that will touch on their faith, their practice, the role of science and logic in everyday life. And I'm really looking forward to this. Our host for this conversation, of course, is Rabbi Michael Bayo. CEO of the East Valley Jewish Community Center. Good morning, Rabbi. Good morning, Adrian, and uh, good morning, Peggy and David. Thank you very, very much for joining us for a conversation with the Rabbi. Very excited to host you and to uh, hear all that you have to tell us about both the the high faith, your work, and uh, and as Adrian said, the intersection between uh, science and religion. You know, it's something that I think probably most listeners will not have been exposed to before. The Baha'i faith is an independent world religion. It began in Iran in 1844 and has spread to well over 200 countries and territories and yet is not very well known. So, Peggy, David, why don't you start off this conversation by giving us kind of the 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 Baha'i for newbies point of view? Like, how do you introduce yourself to folks and talk a little bit about who you are? Uh, about the tradition that you participate in and all of that? Well, one of the things with that is that um, we believe in, as Baha'is, we believe in the oneness of God, that there is only one God and that God has been sending different messengers over time to instruct us, to uh, direct us and help us. Um, And we believe that the most recent one was Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God when you translate it to English. Um, we believe that there is only one humanity, that uh, we are all brothers and sisters, and that we need to act that way. Um, we believe that um, we must, in order to get to the point where we will be happy together, we have to eliminate our prejudices. We absolutely must. Uh, that's re- uh, racial, uh, gender, uh, religious, um, economic, all of those, we have to, we have to remove those from our world. And in doing so, we actually will come bring about world peace. World peace is possible, but we have to do the work. We have to change. Well, I would add to that, that we believe that humanity is uh, a spiritual entity, that we have souls um, and that they are created by God and that our purpose is to purify these souls and develop them spiritually. And to fail to do that is to, is to waste, you know, your own personal resource. How we act in the world actually then would be a reflection of our spiritual development and acquiring virtues, um, honesty for one or respect for another or compassion. Uh, these are spiritual virtues, but their reality in the real world would be quite um, ext- extensive in terms of how people build products, uh, create uh, cities, design things, um, even social systems. If it was a member of your family, you'd treat that member of the family different than a complete stranger. And and the message we believe in all the religions from the past and probably far into the future will be there are no strangers. That's a wonderful thing. Certainly as an anthropologist, the human science tradition that I participate in has argued very strongly for an understanding that's not widely shared, that humans are probably the most homogeneous species of mammals on the planet. And that from a purely genetic point of view, not that that's the only way one should look at oneself, but from that point of view, there is less genetic variation between you and any other human on earth, no matter how different they look then there might be between two chimpanzees that look identical. The two identical looking chimpanzees might be more genetically diverse than you and someone who looks very different from you. And yet we don't think that way and we don't talk that way. And we've put ourselves into these categories and divided ourselves and look where that's gotten us. Well, actually, you've answered the question. 
the science of it is exactly what you said. Uh, the superstition is that we're different and that these people don't count as much and they're somehow not the members of my family. So to me, religion is saying, love one another. You know, uh, the, the, the creation story of, of actually most religions in the world has to do with people all coming out of the earth, being created from the earth, um, either being created by hand out of dust or sung into existence in some religions. Um, but they're all made of the same substance. And that's a, that's a spiritual teaching at the heart of many, many uh, religions. And it's exactly what you just said. May I ask a question? Um, you know, and I hope that it's not an irreverent question. It's just trying to understand. It seems to me, also based upon prior conversation that we had, that uh, the Baha'i faith is very much in sync with reason. Um, and given that as a basis, why do you think that most religions are not in sync with reason? The overwhelming majority of religious expressions seem to me to be completely antithesis to reason. Um, and that is why, you know, I think that those people that are brought up in those faith traditions and leave, often leave because they have seen a contrast between their, what they have been taught in their faith and then reason. But explain to me, why do you think it's so? I think that's the case because of the fact people think that they they want to take what they have, the the let's say um, the, their religious teachings, and they want to make it more concrete. And in doing so, they come up with um, um, views that, in my mind, seem to be quite bizarre. Uh, I have to tell you, the first time somebody told me that the Earth, Earth was 6,000 years old, I almost laughed because I thought it was a joke. Uh, and then I realized that they were serious. And you, if you think about never it. Been, you've never been to a, to an Orthodox <laughs> day school? I don't know. I was like, Jewish Orthodox day school. That's what they taught me. What, is not true? That is not true. Science does not agree with that. Science does and not when, agree with that. I see. And, and when science when, when science prove something that somebody has said was the case to be wrong, then the people need to change because of the fact to kind of say science is just kind of discovering what's actually really out there and such. Um, uh, but a lot of times that comes from the concept of people trying to make things concrete. Um, the world has to be flat because of the fact when the Messiah comes, everybody's going to be able to see him all at the same time. Well, I'm well, I've sorry. I've heard of that. That's the reason that the world is flat. Yes, yes, that's the world. The reason why the world, because so every, but see, now, then, now then they I finally now, now, now I can go back home and explain to my kids why the world is flat. <laughs> well, Copernicus got into a lot of trouble trying to change that opinion. As did Galileo. It was a fatal point of view. Yes, yes, exactly. And so you kind of say, but but people have interpreted what they what they are in their holy books as being very. A lot of times, when it's they want to re, uh, make it literal, well, you kind of think God doesn't need to to write a history book. He doesn't does not need to be literal. You need to look at what is the spiritual reason for that, and why is that the case? And I think a lot of times people forget to look at the why. Peggy, are you sure that you belong to the Baha'i faith and you're not a hidden Jewish Maimonidean? <laughs> Here's a question. You said God doesn't need to write a history book. And that prompted me to ask, what are the attributes of God in your faith? I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist Christian in which it's very common as it is in many Protestant and in many other traditions to anthropomorphize God and to talk about God with human descriptions. Uh, and of course, there are there are strands of, of mysticism and Christianity and Judaism and Islam and others that refuse to use human attributes to describe the divine. But I'm curious, were you saying that casually in the sense of a metaphor or how does God, is God, does God have qualities like a person? God is a knowable essence. He's beyond our comprehension. And so that's that's what we believe 
you know, I, I can't describe God because I, I don't know how, how to describe him. You know, the first the first time I, I met Peggy, I'm sorry to interrupt you, just just in context, I I so much connected to everything that Peggy was saying because I could have I could have said the same words coming from a Jewish Maimonidean approach. Also, Maimonides says exactly the same. God Maimonides says God is not knowable. The only thing we know about God is what God is not. So I can describe God in what my mother is called the negative theology. To say God is not X, God is not Y, but I cannot describe positively what God is. And, and, and the words that Peggy was saying, and she will continue to explain uh, from the Baha'i tradition, they, they resonated so much with me because they're so... As I said earlier, jokingly, you know, maybe she's a Jewish Maimonidean, you know, that there, it's fascinating to see uh, how two traditions that are, you know, very, very afar, but on these specific points, uh, they're so close. And I will tell you, that it's because the fact I think it all came from the same source. Years ago, when I was young, I uh, had a theological discussion with an also young um, man who was studying for the Jesuit priesthood. And it was about an hour long discussion. I, I think coffee was involved. And we were both discussing uh, ways in which uh, our religions dealt with God and people and virtues and civilization. And we discovered that um, there was a tremendous parallelism. And, uh, I found that, and I hope he found that, kind of interesting that uh, we weren't discussing theology or taking up collections, but how the human condition uh, can be improved. And so I felt that um, it, it amplifies what Peggy said, which is, at the core, almost every religion, revealed religion that we know of, of course, there's always crazy exceptions, but... Um, has the same kind of, of concept, the anthropomorphization, wow, I actually said that, um, of God is, I think, um, a problem philosophically and religiously and culturally and even ethically. Uh, in, for example, uh, in, a, in a Baha'i prayer, it might to say that God is, is the most merciful of the merciful. And that's about as close as you can get. Um, Peggy has uh, an analogy that she uh, used that she thinks works, having to do with a, a carpenter and a table. Okay. Um, it doesn't spring into her mind. Uh, the analogy is that uh, a perfect carpenter, a fabulous carpenter, a master carpenter builds this beautiful table. It's lines and and proportions are excellent. It's finished beautifully. It's a work of art. And the table, to a certain extent, exemplifies the mastery and capability and wisdom of the carpenter. But the table cannot understand the carpenter. And we believe, at least in our simple minds, that that relationship exists somewhat between us and God. We're the table. We were created by God. We don't have the capacity to understand the reality of God. It's totally outside our, our capability. As much as I agree and understand with that, let me, let me probe and go a little bit further in my questions. My assumption is, and please prove to me right or wrong, that those traditions from time immemorial until today, that did or they do anthropomorphize God are more prone to look at other traditions and if they have the ability to try to change or impose their tradition on others. Because the moment that I anthropomorphize God, then I, as a subject of God, I become part with, together with God in some form or another. And then I see in me God as well. 
or I see in those who behave like me, God, and God behaves in certain ways. And so God will go and strike down those who are against God. Okay, let me go and do that. Let me go and do the work of God, the anthropomorphic God that doesn't like the other, that doesn't approve of other forms of worship. And therefore, let me be the hand of God that does that. While a tradition that completely is against any form of anthropomorphism of God, then that I don't really know what God wants or doesn't want. I can only speculate what I think God wants and do the best that I can. But I think that they're less prone to say categorically God wants me to kill somebody else because they are not worshiping like me. Is it just a figment of my imagination or is there some some truth to that? I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're quite correct because of the fact you kind of say, in fact, actually, we had an example not that long ago. The person who said that they couldn't wear a mask because of the fact we're made in the form of God. And so therefore you cannot cover the face. First of all, you're making an assumption that God has a face. And that you know that God has a face. And that it looks like you. And it looks like you. Exactly. Exactly. And he wasn't a very good looking guy. <laughs> yes. Oh, poor God. But, but it's one of those things where I think, I think you're correct. It, it makes the assumption when, when people say God told me to do this. And particularly when it's a negative thing, you kind of think, right. I'm sorry. First of all, if you look at your holy writings, God does not tell you to do bad things. You should be kind and thoughtful and courteous and um, truthful and honest and trustworthy and, you know, respectful. All of those love. Love is a very big one. And so you kind of say, if those are the qualities that that at least those are the qualities I believe God wants me to develop, then when you get anything that's contrary to that, you kind of say, you made that up. And um, but but I think you're correct. It's kind of like if I think God looks like me physically. Right. And then so therefore I am part of God, which, oh, my heavens, I would not want to be in that position where somebody thought that be that person. Um, but it's one of those things. If you're in that situation, then you're I think maybe you're right. You kind of feel justified because of the fact it it follows along with with it's kind of like using. Um, reason, but not, uh, I, I should say rationale, really, because of the fact you're, you're rationalizing why what you're doing, which is wrong, is right. Okay. Justifying your actions with some claim to divine dictate. Yeah. Right. There's a long list of things that God has told us to do. You know, uh, there's, a, some, there's a few I recall uh, in the Jewish tradition about thou shalt not, you know, kill and murder and steal and cover the neighbor's wife and, and take the name of your Lord in vain, etc. These are things that we're actually told to do. Um, uh, we're told in many religions uh, to offer charity, to be kind, um, to be fair. Justice appears very often in divine literature. Uh, these are instructions. Um, long ago, when I was involved in, in uh, a quality development system and manufacturing plants, forgive me, um, uh, we, we learned that there's a thing called work instructions. And everything you read on the boards and everything in the web pages and everything your boss tells you is work instructions. And in most companies, they disagree and conflict. And if you eliminate the confliction, uh, the conflict and the disagreement, very often the quality of the product goes up. Well, uh, I'm sorry, uh, most, of these, most of these religions don't disagree. Most of these religions actually give us very similar basic teachings about our relationships that have to do with virtues. And the other stuff, as Peggy said, 500 years later, it seems like a good idea, but I just really made it up. But then... If we all agree that most religions, and I hope that we're not just being, that we're saying this because of the kumbaya, but if we do truly believe 
that most traditions um they teach to be nice and courteous and seek justice and everything then please explain to me why for the better part of human existence people fought over religion i mean it's a contradiction it's an internal contradiction either our religions truly teach us to be nice and kind to the stranger etc cetera, etc cetera. That, but if that is so, we would not have had so many, so many tragedies that occurred either directly or indirectly because of religion. The first thing is, of, of course, to examine the premise of the question. Is it actually true that since time immemorial, people have fought over religion? Of course, it's true that they have. And there are so many examples of religion driving conflict. But I think it would be a mistake to assume that's the only story and to ignore the also multitudinous, since we're going for the big words today, examples of coexistence and leaving people alone. I mean, I think as many examples of wars being fought over land, over resources, over craven human concerns, and maybe having a religious justification overlaid on the top. I think we ought to somehow disentangle those. And you'll, you'll forgive me the, the diversion here, but I think, for example, of uh, the Sudan in Africa as a country I spent a lot of time in as a humanitarian relief worker. Sudan had, uh, back when it was one country, uh, it was the largest country in Africa. It had for many, many, many years had been involved in civil war. That war had a religious dimension to it in the sense that the Islamic junta based in Khartoum was oppressing the animist and Christian converted tribes in the South. So it was described with the language of jihad and holy war by this Muslim military regime that was oppressing those people. And they stood up militias and they did horrible things in villages and they used religion as a justification for it. Fast forward to when I was there, 2004 and 2005, the conflict was in Darfur. Everybody in Darfur was Muslim. So the same Islamic military junta in Khartoum couldn't use that language to foment division. So instead, they used racial language. And the idea was that the Arabs are superior to the Africans. By the way, the irony of this was that those labels didn't match anyone's expectation of what they meant. You would be talking to somebody whose appearance would lead you to think they would be an African, darker skin, flatter nose, what have you. And they would tell you about their long lineage in an Arab tribe. It turned out it was a linguistic division, not a racial one, both of which are arbitrary. Anyhow, I think that what we need to understand is why it is that religion has predisposed itself to be a justification, a rationalization, as Peggy said. Why is it that some religions have allowed themselves to be used as a reason to destroy other people? So, so I agree with you that religion per se is probably never the only cause for wars or discrimination, etc. But as we have all agreed, religion has been kidnapped and has been used for these wars and and to justify whatever the darkest mind uh, wanted to ever to justify. And, and then I go back to my assumption is that maybe we see this more in those traditions or maybe not, that maybe anthropomorphize God. But, you know, it, it's, it's just something that I will have to to, to research more and, and, and try to understand. I always say that, you know, some people, they need God to be a... Uh, uh, the bastard son of Zeus and Santa Claus uh, that uh, uh, no, I'm serious. And that, and, but in a certain way for a lot of people, that what God is and, and, and he gives them comfort. Um, and I respect that. I, I, I really truly respect that for many, many people, uh, God does love them. 
And when I say, no, God doesn't love you, they get emotionally distressed. And so I'm asking you, Peggy and David, when you have those conversations with friends, colleagues, maybe family members, that their thought process is so different than yours, and they do talk about God in anthropomorphic ways, yes, I'm sure that you know, you let it go and it's fine. You know, people are allowed to believe whatever they want, but how do you interact if you interact uh, having those conversations? My viewpoint is war tends to be caused by greed and power. And um, the one thing though about pulling religion into it is the fact it is something that people feel that they can hold on to. And it's, and it's harder to, to, kind of put your finger on it's since it's not materialistic you you kind of say i can take this and use this the 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 person who wants the power um and that's been used in a lot of different ways um if you look at a, a lot of the justification uh, from the early catholic church you kind of say um the whole idea behind that is that they wanted to rule the world and so you kind of say you you use that in order to to make these things happen but when whenever you look down to me whenever you look at any type of of what's considered a religious war it always gets down to, to greed and power that those are what's really the 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 leaders of it want and that they manipulate the the masses in order to to have them um uh, accept this I think, though, part of the thing, too, is that people people are relatively fragile as far as our our uh, view of ourselves. And so you kind of say, I want to feel as if I'm doing the right thing. I want to feel as if I'm loved. Um, and but sometimes other forces, if you will, come into play as far as but I want to have all the money in the world. OK. Uh, those two things don't necessarily go well together. Um, and so then then I get back into that justification of how can I justify what I'm doing in order to, to have these things. But I think it always goes down to greed and power. A different take on the whole uh, event, which is not to negate anything that's been said previously. I believe that's all true, believe it or not. Um, but uh, another way of looking at it from a, a different altitude is that we don't have a lot of recorded history. Um, anthropologically, we go back quarter million years, 300,000 years. You're not that old. Well, some mornings I feel it. But 10,000 years ago, we got some Chinese writing uh, inside of, of turtle shells. Um, so that's pretty much when our records start, although in, in New Mexico, they found some ancient uh artifacts of uh, certain kinds of Indians that were like 30, 40,000 years old, uh, points of arrows or something. But the, the deal is that we believe, I believe anyway, uh, that this is a fairly young planet. This is a fairly young uh, solar system, as solar systems go, um, and that humanity is still uh, thrashing around in its childhood. And that the religious teachings that we got were entirely suited to the time and the place and the people where they were delivered. Um, uh, I liken that to the divine physician, you know, uh, he, he or she or it knows exactly what your illness is and gives you a cure so that a thousand years later, another religion starts somewhere else and it's slightly different. The spiritual principles are generally the same, but, a lot of the physical principles and rules and laws and so forth are different. And I think that's because that was made sense in that society at that time. So Baha'is believe that there's a progressive, forced spiritual evolution of humanity by this succession of divine messengers. And that eventually, and you know, I'm not holding my breath, but eventually um, humanity will um, emerge into maturity. And stop all this selfish fighting and greed and power mongering and lying to everyone to do it and uh, trying to uh, militarize religion. 
to to you know motivate my ends and so forth and so on. So I think we're involved in a, in a process, which is why I think we can look back and say, well, that's the way it was, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the way it will be in the future. Maybe I belong to the Baha'i faith without knowing it. <laughs> no, actually, you, 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 you have to look for suspicious because um, 6,000 years was the number coming up by Bishop Usher in 1666, and he was a Catholic. So you may want to check your sources. Actually, he was Presbyterian. Always Presbyterian. I'm sorry. But let me ask you two questions because it's very interesting what, what, what you said. And, and I agree with everything that you said. Uh, strangely enough um uh number one does your religion does your tradition believe allows for other um civilizations to exist in other planets does your tradition speaks about this at all uh and second let's go with this question first like uh, because you, you mentioned that, you know, how our solar system is a very young one, et cetera, et cetera, which is all true. So my question then is, okay, do you believe that there are other civilizations, uh, humanoid or not, that exist in other planets? And does your tradition addresses that? I just also don't want to let it slide by that we're defining four and a half billion years as very young. <laughs> it turns out that... Um, some astronomer has calculated that on the basis of the amount of gas loose in the universe between galaxies, et cetera, that there's enough uh, free gas to actually produce 90% more stars than exist already if stars keep forming. Obviously, it's, it's a long time to us. I remember a line in the geology book where the guy was talking about the mountains coming up near Jackson, Wyoming. And he said, those mountains race to the surface in only 35 million years. <laughs> so Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard used to try to get people to wrap their heads around geological time by saying, if you stretched out your arm and the beginning of the solar system was the joint at your shoulder and today was the very tip of your fingernail that merely brushing a nail file lightly across the surface of your fingernail would erase literally everything that is known about human history because it's so little of that sequence. I agree. Yeah, often we don't realize the um, time and we don't realize the impact of time and, and our position in history and time and, and how... Ultimately, as Abraham said, uh, I am just dust of the earth and nothing else. And, and I think that that is very important for human beings to realize that and to humble ourselves in front of history and, and, uh, and galaxies and, and gods and all of that. And to realize that so much of the, as we were saying, of the wars come for greed of all kinds, and if maybe if we were to humble ourselves and understand our true nothingness, then we would leave lead a much nicer lives. <laughs> Strangely enough, we might leave each other alone a little bit more too. And and then and then we will be happier. But to, to get to get back to your I'm sorry, to get back to your question. I don't yeah. want to ignore that question. Um, the Baha'i faith alludes to the fact that. Uh, planets throughout the universe have creatures. Now, uh, the word's kind of interesting because it implies all kinds of life. It doesn't necessarily imply uh, people, regardless of what they look like. Um, but there's this very big universe out there, you know, billions and billions of galaxies, each with billions and billions of stars. And as someone pointed out, boy, if there's no one out there, that's a lot of wasted space. Yeah. So I, I, I don't, we don't preclude that, but whom, whomever we meet will um, have uh, the same spiritual reality, even though physically they may be different. One last thing, though, or one other thing is the, the I want to respond to the, the what you were talking about, Rabbi, as far as the the if we recognized that uh, we're just dust um, in the high writings, it talks about, oh, children of dust. And so that business of humility, 
Part of the thing is if I recognize that God is unknowable, then I recognize my position in this is just a tiny little speck. And my job is to just do as best as I can. But I recognize my humility as opposed to the the pridefulness, showing pride before God. Like I say, we don't want to be that person. Um, if you're showing pride towards God, then you think you can you can define what God says and and uh, you know God's mind. I'm sorry, I can't limit God. You know that's not possible. So humility. I would like to switch and I'll ask you and go to a different topic. It's a topic that uh, has always bothered me whenever I think of the Baha'i faith, and it is that in Iran, where your faith with the cradle of your faith, you are persecuted. Uh, your religion is persecuted in Iran. Can you talk to us a little bit? Um, so maybe that also our audience will learn about uh, the struggles of the, of people of your faith that are facing persecution for religious reasons, even today in 2021. Well, I will tell you when the, the Baha'i faith start, first started, um, 20,000 uh, believers in Iran were were murdered and sometimes in horrible, ghastly ways that to me or, I, I, you know, I don't know how somebody could actually think to torture a person like that. Um, today, although, you know, you kind of say, oh, well, that was in the past, right? Well, the problem, of course, is the fact this persecution continues. They've continued with, um, there have been, uh, there was a, uh, I can't remember, she was, I think she was 16 years old. They hung her because of the fact she was teaching children. That was her crime. She was a Baha'i teaching children about the Baha'i faith. But if your faith is monotheistic, it's not if, your faith is monotheistic, then what is the theological or the problem? I mean, why, from an Islamic perspective, should you be persecuted if you're monotheistic? Like, I mean, you're, you're, yes. you're not pagans. You're not, uh, not, not, not that that would be okay to persecute somebody that is a pagan, but I'm just saying uh, you don't worship statues. Uh, you don't have those imageries that uh, may offend deeply a Muslim community. So why? It's a theological difference. And part of it is that um, the uh, Baha'u'llah came and said that he is the the next messenger of god well in certain muslims believe that since muhammad was considered the seal of the prophet he was the last prophet i see so you kind of say okay god said he'd never leave us alone but you're going to say that muhammad was the last one just like the christians think that really jesus was the last one um until some mythical time that and Jews believe that Moses was the last exactly so you kind of say so we so Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah was the most recent messenger of God now we can explain that in the fact we believe that we've been in the in the time of uh prophecy and Muhammad was the last um prophet in the line of prophecy he was the last warner because the fact that turns out that's another another name in, in Islam of, of what prophet means. And that Baha'u'llah was the beginning of a new era of fulfillment. We really will have world peace. We absolutely believe it. Don't hold your breath. We got a lot of work to do, but it's that he started a new era. And so the, some people believe that uh, the Baha'i faith is a, an offshoot, uh, an invalid offshoot of Islam. Well, First of all, it's not an offshoot, and it's, it's so it is a, its own religion. But it because of the fact, and I don't know if it has to do with the fact that it came from um, an area that was Islam, um, from people who would be traditionally Islamic. Um, that then there's kind of this this uh, there's a feeling as if it's a greater conflict. But it's like in the in in Iran today, people can't own property. They can't go to um, a school. They're kicked out of school. If they work for the government, they lose their pensions. Yeah, I think it's important. A couple of things. First of all, to acknowledge persecution wherever we find it, and because this goes to the root of 
what connects a lot of this conversation, which is around social justice and how do we treat people with respect, even when we disagree, et cetera, et cetera. It's also important to, to note that there's been a lot of different things happening in Iran between 1844 and the present day. So whereas the Qajar dynasty had, had one reaction through the Republic, which may have been a but the Baha'i may have had a different, I don't know, I'm just guessing, may have had a different position in Iran under the Shahs through to the Islamic Revolution in 1979, where a resurgence of a, a Mullah-led Islamic outlook on life is created issues for a number of different kinds of people. There's that. And then there's the worldwide spread of this faith, right? So the fact that, yes, persecution in Iran is a problem, but there may also have been persecution other places and flourishing other places. Can you can you speak a little bit? And I do want to have a circle back to science and logic and reason and faith before the end of the conversation. But can you speak a little bit to, to that phenomenon? How how does the Baha'i community experience itself in the various places now around the world where members are? The Baha'i faith does indeed have places where the Baha'is are being persecuted. Um there are places where it's uh, uh, illegal to be a Baha'i in other in other countries. Um, Malaysia comes to mind. Um, in uh, in Greece, there was a long time there was a, a very uh, kind of a tightrope that that needed to be walked by Baha'is uh, because the fact if you're in Greece, you need to be Greek Orthodox uh, in order to be Greek. Um, even though Greece is part of the EU, I mean, they... It, it's lessened. Interesting. But they still have to be Greek Orthodox. So in, in Greece, it's the only place where Baha'is are also allowed to be Greek Orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. If you think about it, it's it's political that you have to be Greek Orthodox, not because of... Because uh, of, of of real religion, if you will, and that's again where you kind of say you've you've mixed these two things together as if they're one and the same, but they are absolutely not. Um, and yet, there's other places. India, um, the Baha'i faith is growing, you know, quite quickly. Um, so, and uh, the Baha'i faith is actually spread out in more than two hundred uh, countries and and territories. So there's there's Baha'is all over the world. Some type places there's more than others. We know that the the shrine uh, is in uh, Haifa, and Haifa is considered a holy city, uh, or, or just a shrine. Well, it is considered a holy city. It's also though where the world center of the Baha'i faith resides. Right, and is there a lot of Israelis that become Baha'i? No, actually, um, the only people in in Israel, who are Baha'is are the people who are serving at the World Center, volunteering at the World Center. Interesting. Okay. And if you become a Baha'i in, in Israel, then actually you may be asked to leave Israel because of the fact we do not, we do not try and teach uh, the Israelis. I understand. Okay. So one of the themes in this conversation has been acknowledging that in many traditions, there is tension between faith and reason. There has his, historically been, uh, you have to pick a side, right? Because the sources of truth cannot, cannot coexist. So either you're turning to revealed uh, religion and your faith in, in that tradition, or you are turning to put your faith in a methodology and a community that is materialistic, uh, empiricist, and that says the only the only uh, true knowledge is what we can discover through the process of creating and learning uh, scientifically, right? You both have uh, long histories of professional engagement in technology and science communities. You would be described by many folks who probably didn't know uh, about your uh, participation in the Baha'i faith as, you know, a typical kind of expert in science and technology. That's kind of what you do. And yet for you, these two things are comfortably coexist. Can you speak to that? What this issue of science versus faith? In the Baha'i faith, it's very specific that we believe in the harmony of science and religion. Because we believe that um, science, uh, 
without religion results in greed and selfishness and materialism. Whereas religion without science results in superstition. And so you have to have that they go hand in hand. Otherwise, you end up kind of, uh, if, you, if you think of it as like a, uh, uh, a teeter-totter or a, uh, a fulcrum, you, you want to be in the middle because of the fact you recognize if you have religion, it then takes you to forward in science in the right ways with the right motivation. You know, and and if you take science without having any religion, then you're somewhat wandering because the fact you don't have why should you know I develop um, nuclear power as opposed to nuclear bomb. One of the things that um, Baha'is believe is that there is uh, the same God that invented uh, and created the universe uh, and all the things in it obviously created both religion and science that uh, I think the, the story of, of, of Genesis, which matches a bunch of other stories, emergent stories, is very clear that there was nothing. And all of a sudden, uh, there was something, and it was ordered, and it became our universe. So to say that the religion is somehow exempt from the concept of order and rules um, that makes sense is uh, probably a wrong thing. But it's, it's a different kind of thing because all science deals with mostly um, things, you know, uh, gadgets, um, measurement, things I can measure and see, uh, qualities of the atom, the development of uh, solar power. All these are things. And religion deals with the soul. And the soul is not entirely of this dimension. The soul exists... Um, I think outside of time and space, you know, I don't think it sits in your liver. And the, uh, the concept there is there are rules and we're given those rules too. Um, forgiveness, a charity, kindness. Um, and these have definite measurable responses in the person who's providing them and in the people with whom that person is, is uh, involved. So we've got lots of rules and organization in religion. But when a religionist looks at something and says, well, this is what it means scientifically, well, they're, they're stepping out of their area of expertise. And when a scientist says, well, you know, uh, you can't measure God and, and therefore you can't prove it, well, she's stepping outside her area of expertise. And they're using the wrong kind of standard for a different kind of logic. The other thing too I want to bring up is the concept of miracles. People kind of feel like miracles have to be something that's, you know, uh, not, cannot be explained by science. And yet um, I know that they did some research about the, the, the uh, parting of the Red Sea. They believe that there was a um, volcanic explosion that called it, caused a tsunami that just kind of happened right when it was needed. And so to me, God doesn't need to break his rules to make things that he might want to have happen, happen. Now, as to whether, you know, the whole details of that, really, I don't know, obviously, but you kind of think that concept of, of providence is something that it's not that you can say, oh, God did that for me. You don't know that it could be, and you know, but it's one of those things where I think that when when dot when 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 there are, are things that occur and people find scientific exper uh, uh, um, explanations for it, that does not discount that there might have been some divine intervention in it. Yeah, you know, I think it's fascinating to consider the differences between religious traditions that emerge in, let's say, eighteen forty-four versus the seventh century, versus the first century, versus the Iron Age. And what is happening in the broader context of those times, I mean, none of those earlier uh, revelations, if you will, had to take account of the fact that there was already an industry happening. There was already, what, by 1844, what we would properly call scientific knowledge happening. Yeah, but on the other end, Adrian, there are very modern expression of Christianity. 
that were definitely born in a modern age and their belief system is, uh, I would say, is in contradiction with science and reason as we understand reason and as we understand rationality. And you know, I completely agree with you on that. That's an excellent point. I know, I know, I know, I know. I just wanted to pick on you and say that the comment that you made may not be, I'm not sure that we can use it as a metaphor, as a template for all new religions. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Cha-ching. And the way in which traditions <laughs> respond to their environment, we, we could say some and we've talked about this with regard to some movements called fundamentalist, which are inherently modern, but their reaction to modernity is to put a medieval layer yeah. over their over it. Anyway, yeah. we're running out of time. We should give our guests the final word here. Share with us the importance, in your view, of the commitment to social justice and to treating people better than we have. This infuses your volunteer work, both within and outside of your faith. Uh, let's have you say something to end our conversation today on that imperative that you mentioned in the beginning of this conversation uh, to eliminate prejudice and work together for a better world. To work together is absolutely something that we strongly believe in. That uh, so, and we have to recognize though, where are we? We do have systemic racism. So we need to look at, okay, how can we bring about the social justice of eliminating that racism. Um, and although actually I, I was reading, I read the book Cast, and so I'm going to suggest we need to remove the caste system that we have. Um, we need to look at also how do we bring about the equality of men and women. All of these things we recognize have to happen. So it's so one of the things that we've been doing is trying to be involved in various um, uh Organizations that promote that, um, although since we do not believe in being uh, political or partisan, we only are involved with those that are not. Matter of fact, I'm going to put a plug in for we have a social justice interfaith devotional. It's going to be on it's the first Wednesday of the month, every month at seven o'clock. Where we talk about what we we look at um, inspirational um uh, quotes, and then we have a good we have a good discussion about you know what how can we, how can we bring about developing um, these particular virtues. The next one we're going to have on sacrifice. We've done respect and courtesy and and courage, um, all of those that that are important. Our guests today are Peggy and David Schlesinger. They're members of the Baha'i Faith and leaders in the Chandler community and beyond. Thank you both so much for joining us for this conversation with the rabbi. Happy to be here. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate the conversation. I learn a lot every time we get together. So really, thank you very, very much. Thank you for having us. Take care. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.